Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 237 and my conversation with commissioning percussionist, music professor, and half of the Fisher Lau Project percussion duo, Abby Fisher. First off, some news to report on this end. We at Mizzou were officially informed this past Saturday at our annual band banquet that Marching Mizzou has been selected to perform in the 2022 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. I say officially here because while I was aware that this was an event that our Marching Mizzou director, Dr. Amy Knops, had been wanting to go to for a few years, I wasn't sure that we were going to be trying to go anytime soon. The original plan, though, was for us to go this coming November, 2021, and that's the performance that we actually got accepted for. However, with the pandemic canceling live performances, they were effectively backlogged, so we got put on the back burner, which meant it was finally time for the reveal, and that was very well done. During our two-hour band banquet over Zoom, we were told something officially was going to be announced and to definitely be available for it. When that particular time arrived, all of a sudden, a lot of upper administration, including the director of the School of Music, deans, the chancellor, etc., start showing up on the Zoom call. Then comes the announcement, and the students lost their collective minds. That was the best part. They went bonkers. And the screen captures of them losing it were pretty amazing. And of course, being from Long Island, it will be fun to be there in New York for Thanksgiving. Because that's a rare treat. All right, enough of that. Let's get to today's guest, Abby Fisher. Abby and I are meeting for the first time over this interview. And I think it went pretty well. I was made aware of Abby through both her performances as part of the Fisher Lau Project with Matthew Lau and her appearances on other podcasts. Abby is currently teaching in the Knoxville, Tennessee area, where her focus is on non-percussion classes while also picking up whatever percussion teaching and performing she's available to do. She remains active as a performer with a focus on commissioning unaccompanied works for solo percussion and speaking voice. She's also performing with Matthew Lau and is working as an administrator and performer for the Neefnorf Chamber Music Festival. We get to all that, her double life in music and sports, and her thoughts on living on Long Island. One more note, there's going to be an unusual answer to one of the usual random ask questions at the end. So stay tuned for that. All right, let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on March 9th, 2021, and it begins right now. So, Abby, give me a summation of your percussion activities as they are right now. 
Right now, I uh, teach in a couple different capacities. I teach at Pellissippi State Community College as an adjunct professor, um, teaching lecture courses when we're in person. Um, it's an intro to music course, music history, basically. And then I also teach private lessons. I teach percussion and piano private lessons. And um, to a lot of younger students, which has been really great, experience for me. I've started doing that in the last couple of years here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then I uh, play percussion, um, which I love. And uh, I play solo music, solo uh, new music, a lot of music that I commission. Um, and then I also have a duo project, um, the Fisher Lau project with Matthew Lau, and he's based in Hong Kong. So this is a long distance sort of project relationship uh, that we have with each other, but we communicate a lot and um, uh, we try to have at least one in-person event concert um, a, once a year. Uh, so that's kind of like been our goal I, with, with COVID that didn't happen. We were supposed to, I was supposed to go to Hong Kong in May, 2020. And so that's been pushed off, you know, until we can do that again. Um, and then I work for NIFNORF. Um, I'm the managing director of NIFNORF um, and uh, we have a annual summer festival uh, so that's like the big thing that we look towards every year and that I um, help run and manage all of the, all of our fellows, our participants that come in and working with all of our NIFNORF artists. And then we also have uh, various other events throughout the year, whether that's performances or other community um, sort of project concerts. So those are my, my main activities. Um, and then other things come up, other uh, performances with people in town. Um, and then sometimes subbing with the KSO, the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra. Um, so, you know, so like somewhat of the freelance life, although that gigging is not, you know, my main thing, but definitely welcome those activities. Yeah, that's great. So what brought you originally to Knoxville then? Yeah, I had finished um, my doctorate at Stony Brook and um, Andy Bliss, the uh, who I work with for NIFNORF. He's the ex uh, executive and artistic director of NIFNORF. Um, he works at, uh, he's the professor at University of Tennessee and he was going to be taking the fall semester uh, sort of sabbatical because um, his, his wife was having a baby. And so he offered that I could fill in for him for that semester. And so I happily and was honored to, to take that because uh, I just finished school and was looking for something to do. And, um, you know, definitely am wanting to uh, be a university professor in the future. And so it was just a great experience to kind of move down here and fill in for him. And then I ended up just staying. I was considering moving back to New York because I had li I lived there for about five years uh, being at NYU and then at Stony Brook. Um, but I just decided not to make that move back and just to stay around Knoxville and look for work here and look for, you know, things to just continue doing around Knoxville for now. Was that fall 2019? No, that was um, fall 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah. That That's when you, that was, that was your replacement semester? Yeah. Cause I, yeah, I graduated, uh, I, yeah, spring 2017, if I'm getting this right. I have to like look up my CV. I'm like forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Is it that while you're there, you kind of find that there's a lot of opportunities or possibilities while you're in Knoxville? 
basically I, I was sort of figuring out, okay, what would be my option of staying here versus moving back to New York. And obviously the cost of living in New York is, is a lot. And I'd experienced that I'd lived in New York city and I'd lived on long Island for both of the degrees I was there for. Um, and I had had, um, a teaching artist job um, when I was in New York. And so I had been in communication with those people about possibly coming back. And at the time that job wasn't enough hours of work. And obviously I, you know, you could fill it in with other things, but it was just um, kind of overwhelming thought to move back without a job, you know, which is, which is kind of a struggle for a lot of us to like move somewhere with no work and have to make it have to make it work uh, with rent and everything else. Um, so I just, I just, you know, was like, well, maybe I'll stay here. And you know, there are opportunities, and um, I can. And, and Andy was very kind to let me continue to practice at the school, and that was a huge thing to have some of those resources available to me. Um, so you know, it was it was a, a good place to to stay um, and to look around and see what I could do here and. Um, so yeah, getting, getting a job at the local community college and getting some students, um, in the area and, uh, being able to work with Andy for Neefnorf and to, to use some of the instruments at the university. So, you know, I, you kind of just see what works in the area that you're in. Got it. So what was the kind of the progression of jobs that you ended up acquiring so that you could actually stay there? I think I didn't actually start really getting those jobs that I mentioned until the following fall until like 2018, because that winter, um, that, that, that spring semester, rather, um, I, uh, was working with Heartland Marimba Ensemble. Mm. Um, and so I was a substitute member of that group. And so we had a couple like smaller tours throughout that. So I wasn't, I was in Knoxville, but I wasn't always in Knoxville. Um, so yeah, I, I was kind of, um, here and there a little bit for that, uh, part of that year. Uh, and then, yeah, then I was sort of like, okay, now I need to like reach out and find some work here. Cause I'm going to stay here. Um, and so that sort of happened more like in the summer, um, of 2018 into the fall of 2018. What was the situation with the community college? How, was it like you get you get maybe a couple students and then you go, I can really teach whatever you need. Like, I would like to make money, <laughs> all these things. <laughs> yeah, so I actually, well, I don't teach percussion there, even though I would love to. Um, I'm teaching the uh, intro to music, which is, which is, had, was, has been a really great experience because it's taught me how to speak you know, for, you know, an hour at a time and have to develop lectures mm -hmm. and, you know, have all this material just to keep talking. Yeah. Um, and so that it's been a really amazing skill to gain from this experience. Um, and so, yeah, I think, uh, the music, the person who was the head of the music department, um, she had, I think reached out to Andy and had said, you know, we're looking for someone. And so then he recommended me to talk to her. And so, it was kind of just, you know, the situation of like who, you know, kind of thing. And I did end up putting in an application, but um, since she had kind of known who I was through him, we met. And then um, I started up with a couple of uh, sections at the, at the college. Cause you said when you're able to meet in person, does that mean that there's no um, online component for it? 
There is, but it's not lecturing. So uh, right now, I it's hard to call it a lecture course because <laughs> um, I'm not actually speaking to the students. So um, since COVID, it, I have been teaching it uh, online, but um, it's very different. It's a totally different experience for me and for the students. It's uh, more like do your work and I'm going to grade it kind of thing. Yeah. Is it um, like so a, feel, kind of an asynchronous setup? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just feel like I'm more of like a tech support, like here, if you need me kind of thing. And um, it is good in some ways, but then, you know, it really, I really don't feel that I'm teaching them and I'm just sort of like guiding them along um, and, you know, here if they need help, but it's, it's so different from in-person for this class in particular. I, I've noticed that same, that it's, you, you just don't, that interaction, sometimes you just, I was like, who are these students? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah, if they take advantage of coming to see me for my Zoom office hour, then they get to meet me and then I get to meet them and, you know, it's more personal, but they don't have to come right. to the, they don't have to come to that Zoom office hour. So if they don't, then, you know, I'm just someone behind a screen you know, who maybe gives them a bad grade on this thing or who, who gives them good grades or, or whatever it is. So um, it's so impersonal, um, especially for this type of asynchronous class. Yeah. Have you had to record lectures for that? No, that that's oh. also part of this. Yeah. Okay. So this, like this uh, specific course that we have, we're sort of recommended to not do that because um, like the book provides all the information that they need. And um, also I, I, I provide up my slides that I would normally have. And so I've embellished those, like I've put more information in those so they can study those as, as a resource for taking the tests as well. Um, so yeah, that's been another thing is they don't, yeah, they don't hear my voice. They don't see me unless we talk over Zoom. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that does not sound nearly as, as, as much fun. I, I right. see. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking forward to the fall is uh, when, you know, we'll be going back to doing the in-person. Yes. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. But that's the plan. Yeah. No, it's the plan. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I just, I'm, I'm in the, I'll believe it when I see it kind of. Sure. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Was it just through working at Tennessee that your affiliation with Neve North started or was that you were you a student there prior? I was not a student there um, and I sent Andy an email um, in like 2015 I believe is when I first started and I asked him if I could be an intern for Neve North because I had heard uh, great things about it from a couple of my colleagues and they had attended the festival. I had actually never attended the festival either um, and I just knew I wanted to have an internship at a summer program festival. And um, so I just reached out to him. They didn't advertise any sort of internship. And I was just like, let me see what they say. And um, yeah, he was like, yeah, come on down and, you know, we'll work something out. Um, and so, yeah, I interned for that that summer. And then at the end of that summer, like in August, um, he asked me and another uh, person that was involved um, if we wanted to come on as more like, uh, full, not full-time, but more involved people with Neef North. And so, um, yeah, that's when I really started, uh, being more a part of the Neef North team. 
um, and, you know, has continued since then. So give me kind of the overview of NEF, the plan for NEF North. What, what did they do? What makes them unique? We have the festival and then we also have an ensemble group. Um, and there are definitely more and more groups that are doing a summer program, but I think uh, our, our festival is, is really strong. We, we, have, we have so many amazing alums that have come through it. And um, I think that's what makes us really special is uh, this amazing community of alums that have gone to the festival and have really enjoyed the program that we offer. Um, and it's a contemporary, uh, contemporary new music uh, festival. And um, we have a really great group of artists, Nifnerf artists that come in every summer um, that are sort of like the coaches of the, of the different ensemble pieces. And we have uh, many concerts over the two week period that, that the festival happens at. Um, and yeah, it's just a really fun event that, you know, people come back to be part of it. And then we get new people each year that are, you know, curious about what we do. Um, and it's been really great to be a part of. When, when's the kind of the main, you know, uh, summertime setting? When does that happen? Um, and is it in person this summer or is it still, is it a virtual thing? Yeah, we're not able to do in person again uh, due to the sort of regulations of University of Tennessee. And so we're, we're, we have it at University of Tennessee. And so we have to follow what their rules are. Sure. Um, so it happens uh, usually the like second and third week of June, I believe. I'm remembering those dates, right? So was Andy the founder? Andy and Carrie O'Brien were the original founders. And um, it, I believe it originally started with that performing group and it was originally a percussion, more of a percussion ensemble. And then throughout the years, they definitely expanded it to be not just percussion, um, like multi-instrumental chamber uh, group. Um, so it's now another thing that makes the ensemble different is that it's not a set group of players. It's not just these specific four people or these specific six people. Um, we have like a roster of players and that will pull on depending on, um, what the pieces call for, for that concert or, you know, who's available, um, or if it has to be in this specific location. Uh, so yeah, a sort of open roster of players. Is it a little bit like a Puro ensemble? Yes, um, but more just uh, depending on the, the piece of music. Like we, we're still definitely open to doing per, a percussion quartet or sextet um, mm -hmm. or a Puro type piece. Uh, um, I think, yeah, open is, is more what we're about. Tell me a little bit about the kind of the commissioning part of what you've done with your solo. Is it a... Do you have a kind of a specific idea of who, what, where in terms of the commissions that you're that you're attempting to do? I've been really interested in percussion and voice pieces. And so mm. I've commissioned a couple pieces that involve that um, using speaking voice and with percussion. Uh, the first one that I worked uh, on a commission was um, All Your Thens For Now, which is uh, speaking voice and vibraphone. And I commissioned that with another percussionist. Um, and we also had a group of um, supporters that helped us um, pay for the pay for that commission, which was really great. Um, and then 
Another piece that I recent, more recently worked on commissioning um, was Correspondence by Andrea Mazziello, and that is um, uh, more of a multi-piece with voice. Uh, so it, yeah, there's been a focus definitely on, on speaking voice and that sort of genre of music. Um, but I think in general with, with commissions, I am more, more interested and in, um, kind of looking for someone that I already have like a relationship with, a composer that I know and that like I, I feel like we could vibe together and work well together through the process of commissioning um, because I'd rather there be a little bit of some back and forth of the composer being like, hey, can you like look at this material and see if this works for you and how you play um, rather than someone just me paying someone or, or asking them to write. And then, you know, a couple of months later, or a year later, them delivering me something and then, you know, that being it. And, and, you know, there's no changes or any sort of communication throughout. So I really like that sort of interactive um, communication of the commissioning process. And so that relationship is, is what I'm interested in. And yeah, there's been pieces that, you know, haven't been for speaking voice that I've commissioned. And so it's not just about that. It's, it's more about, um, are me and this person friends and, and do they write great music? And yeah. Any particular reason it's the, the speaking voice is the, is kind of the way you wanted, you've been framing this. When I was in, uh, my senior year, I think at Lawrence, I had, um, I attended the Zeltzman Marimba Festival and I saw uh, Beverly Johnston, who I actually then studied with for a year. Um, she played a concert and she she plays like more theatrical type pieces mm -hmm. and a couple of her pieces involved speaking. And I was just blown away. And this wasn't the first time I had heard that before. I'd actually heard that earlier in my um, um, time at Lawrence from a piece with Nancy Zeltzman. Um, but, you know, that was um, kind of a turning point and like wanting to push me more in that direction of those more theatrical speaking type pieces. And, and then I uh, wanted to study with Bev. I was like, wow, she's so great. Um, so yeah, I think uh, just hearing um, other amazing percussionists be in this world and how effective that music is um, and then when I performed it uh, myself, uh, the first piece I ever performed with speaking voice was this piece called The Connection by James Rolfe. And um, I had heard Nancy play that and um, she played it and I was like, whoa, like, what is this? This is so different than anything I like ever have heard before. And I want to do something like that too. And then doing it, it was it was so amazing and scary and and all the things to be like looking out to the audience because so much of the time percussionists were like, you know, down in our instrument and we're having to like do all these different things. Um, and uh, to be like looking out and like kind of more connecting with people by staring them in the eye or just having our eyes up. Uh, that was a really great feeling that I wanted to kind of continue to explore and feel that more and feel that connection, which is funny because the piece is called The Connection. Um, and yeah, have more of that um, from the music I was making and, and, um, yeah, speak more and explore that part of me more. What do you find are the specific challenges to preparing that part of a selection versus either just the percussion part or trying to combine the two? There's a lot of challenges. Uh, I think, th well, the pieces that I choose and that I want to play that have speaking 
are more narrative type pieces. And um, there, there are definitely percussion pieces that are not narrative that are maybe more just like you're making kind of sounds with your mouth. And so this doesn't apply to that. But uh, with narrative pieces, you want the vocal part to be as um, natural sounding as, you know, as much, like we're having a conversation right now. So it's very natural sounding. But a lot of times when percussionists start playing and speaking, it's very like robotic. And if you had just, if you were just listening to their voice, it would sound very strange. It wouldn't sound like they were talking normally. <laughs> so that's the biggest um, goal of mine with those pieces is to have it sound really natural. And that's something I really work hard on. So practicing the voice part a lot separately. And, and so I tend to, I, I practice, I separate them out and I, and I learn the percussion part on its own. I learn the voice part on its own. And once they're feeling both really great, Great. Like, you know, you could perform them separately, then bringing them together. Um, so that's something that I've found that um, has worked for me. And but that is, you know, the big struggle with these pieces. How much do, does it does some of the work require you to be to make sure that you're getting your this can get into your lecture part, too, but that your voice is actually being able to be heard over. And, and do you when you play these, do you do you mic yourself? Your voice yeah. to do it? Okay. The balance of the voice with the instrument is is something to definitely think about and is, is hard. And um, yeah, I do mic myself. Um, I have like a little headset mic that I've bought years ago. Um, and yeah, so like thinking about what instruments you're playing and how that's going to work with the voice. And usually the, like how the composer writes the piece, like that is a big part of you know, the voice part with the balance, like, you know, it should all balance out that way. If, you know, that should work. Um, but, you know, sometimes you, you need to make your voice more clear over the instruments. And um, so that was something I actually worked on with um, a theater uh, professor at Stony Brook of uh, this idea of like having a more performative voice versus just, you know, conversational voice, like even though you want it to sound naturally, like I was mentioning before, uh, where you're still performing. And so it needs to be like a little bit louder and like, you know, speaking to the back of the room, uh, but not shouting. And, you know, um, so definitely having that idea in mind. Uh, there's this, the, the correspondence piece I mentioned with uh, that Andrea Mazziello wrote. Uh, he and I have talked about this and um, he's mentioned that if he wrote it again, there's a lot of things that he like it has, it has like uh, sort of some drum set elements and you're speaking and he didn't want me to be shouting. And so originally when we, when we were working on this, the voice was going to fall underneath the drum set. And he's like, yeah, that's what I want. I don't want the audience. Like, you know, there, there would be times when the audience won't hear the voice and it's going to be unclear. And that's what I want. Um, and then I just interviewed him recently for this concert I did. And he was like, yeah, now that I think about it, I don't like that idea. You know, the voice has this, or the speaking part is the, you know, this really important story that I'm telling and the story is about communication. So it doesn't make any sense that, you know, there would be parts where you wouldn't understand what the person is saying. So um, if I wrote it again, I would, you know, air out some of those areas that are, you know, really strong with the symbol and, you know, all of the, those elements. Um, so that was interesting to hear from him because, and I, rec I had recent, I had recorded it again for this, this concert that I did and I did not use the headset mic. Um, I was at home and I was using two overhead mics and I just, I didn't have all the tech 
that I would in a concert hall. Um, and it was harder to hear the voice for sure. Um, and I had included like, uh, the words on the screen so people could, could know what I was saying. Um, but it was, it was also interesting to hear how his idea of that voice part has progressed over time since he's written it. Yeah. Well, two things I, w- I was thinking about with it. One is that on your next commission with him, you could maybe make that, that conversation could happen. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> the thing that, that also went through my mind is that I, I think that as human beings, we to gravitate towards speech anyway. So if it's under the part, and maybe this is something that he, he may have realized as he's, as he's thought about it more, is that we're, like an audience is probably going to be like really trying to listen for that that vocal part, which is intended, intentionally buried. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was like, what, what if we um, take out some of those things in in the the correspondence? And he was like, no, let's just write a new piece. (laughs) So yeah. (laughs) And you're like, great. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I was like, let's do it. (laughs) A conversation we don't even need to have anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You, you, You work the percussion thing out. You work the vocal thing out. Are you having to adjust the tempo when you put those two things together? Because then I would think that would completely mess up your vocal part to try Mm -hmm. to make it fit. Because it's like it's a different coordination idea at that point, right? Yeah, I'm trying to remember back to um, putting together the all your thens for now um, was the like really best example of learning things like separate for a long time because the vibraphone part was really was was hard on its own and the voice part was was really involved on its own too and yeah I think putting them then when I was like okay I'm gonna put them together I did work like measure by measure or uh and then you know couple phrase by phrase so yeah it was like it wasn't like automatic like do 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 you know at tempo and super fast and everything so yeah it was a little bit of like taking a step back and making sure everything lined up um, rhythmically and all of that. So yeah, I think just, but knowing it really well um, individually, and then you're that much ready when you're gonna like slow it down, put it back together, and then then you can get it back to where you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I, you, you're also, again, making me think of, this goes back to your the lecture part that, um, I know when I've had to like either record lectures or particularly with this podcast, if I was listening to other podcasts and then I heard mine and I'm like, wow, I sound really boring or monotone. (laughs) And and this gets to the performative part. You're like, oh, I need to like, even for it to just come out kind of normally, I need to hype it up. And it's, and it's, I mean, if you watch um, animated movies, but it's what everyone, all actors will say is that they have to like, turn their thing up way, 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 just so that on the screen, it's not, it's going to kind of seem kind of normal. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, the other thing that I remember doing is, uh, with that piece that, uh, all your events for now piece is like recording my voice. Um, and you know, like what you're saying is like seeing how that sounded, um, and does that, do you want it to sound that way or do you want it to sound differently? And the big thing that I, ta- that I was talking about with the, um, the coach that I had for the theater coach is the rise and fall sentences. Yeah. And, um, she, she would listen to me and she'd be like, 
do you want the sentence to rise here? Like, you know, is this a question? And it's like, well, no, you know, we're both looking at the text. It's not a question. <laughs> um, and the reason that it's that I'm doing that there is probably because the vibraphone part is rising there. And so, it, you know, that goes back to sometimes when, when you hear percussionists play that haven't maybe done a lot of work with just the text, they're just following the vibraphone part. And sometimes it makes sense to follow whatever that part is. It, it could be cool to kind of like sing you know, the marimba tone or sing the vibraphone tone that's in the music. But a lot of times it doesn't make sense to do that if you're if you're wanting to express uh, what the text is. So, yeah, I really was listening to a lot of like the sentence structure and how my voice was sounding. And the pauses, too, like particularly yeah. in between sentence pauses. That I feel like that is something that I. Uh, had to work on a lot and probably still need to work on is um, not speaking too quickly. And like, because it's not new information for me or, you know, whoever's working on it, like this person's getting so much information. You need to like take those breaks and and let them figure out what is being said, what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it gives you new appreciation for people who do radio um, who have that down. Cause it's just, you just think, Oh, I mean, I could do this. And then, yeah, as you're listening to yourself, you're like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think about how, man, what isn't this is an important kind of um, skill set that just students should have? Like, I mean, you're doing this as a, you know, as a performer and a faculty member, mm-hmm. but it's like just a normal, just like in a normal everyday setting. This is like legit important to a lot of people that we're working with. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I definitely think um, learn like more emphasis on learning how to speak in you know in public, you know, and having to lecture is is really important. And um, you know, unless you there's a professor that requires everyone to do that um, multiple times, not just like one time. Like, of course, we've all had to present in front of the class, but that's not really the same as like you know having to create ongoing lectures. Um, and yeah, I don't know, maybe it just takes having to have like a TA that, you know, has that part of it or having your first job to kind of push you into that. But it would be interesting if there was some part of a degree that would involve public speaking or yeah, we, we just put public, uh, the public speaking course that exists in the university as part of the curriculum for music performance majors that would be yeah I probably would have benefited from that yeah same (laughs) (laughs) um yeah that's 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 great let's talk a little bit about you were the Fisher Lau duo um where did it begin why is Matthew so far away you know whatever however you want (laughs) to yeah 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 it began when we met each other at NYU um, New York University and uh he was sort of a year ahead of me. I think he had already um, graduated and he was there for an artistic diploma, Um, but we uh, interacted a little bit. We didn't play that much, but we we became really good friends. Um, We had like sushi yoga dates that we would, dates uh, that we would go on. And um, uh, yeah. That's dates and quotes, by the way. Dates and quotes. Yeah. (laughs) Not actual dates. Right. Right, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we became really great friends and like really uh, were interested in similar kinds of music um, and didn't really play with each other at that point. And then he went on to Stony Brook and I was uh, becoming more interested in going there. And, and I was auditioning for different 
um, doctoral programs and decided on, uh, after that whole process was over, I was decided on going there as well. Um, and so once we were both there, uh, then that's at that point we decided, actually we were just going to have a recital together. Um, and so we had this duo recital and, um, played some, some great music together. Um, the Bartok duo and, um, I think one or two marimba duos, um, and maybe, maybe a solo each or something. Uh, and, uh, from that point, we were like, let's play more music together. Let's, you know, kind of try to make a duo out of this. Um, and then I think eventually, uh, at Stony Brook, we have this really great space where we, um, have our own studios and, uh, we eventually were sharing a studio together. Um, and so it was easier to, you know, have setups and practice with each other. Um, he was also living in, I was living on Long Island and he was living in New York. So he would commute in. And so when he did come in, you know, he was there for a specific, specific time and he had, he had, uh, you know, a, a time frame where he was like, I have to go back on the train. And so we really scheduled our time well. Um, and we practiced a lot together, but it was like this hour it, or these two hours are on this piece and we're going to do this piece. And then, you know, you have your own practice time. So it was, we had to schedule, we had a plan. Um, and we cannot go long because right. I have a train to catch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a train yeah, is yeah. not I, showing up for another hour and a half. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I lived there. So I was just like, I'm going to be here all night. Like right. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was really great that we're both kind of like schedule oriented, organized people. Um, and yeah, we, we really learned a lot of really great music together during that time in our doctorate. Um, and um, yeah, just want, we wanted to continue to play music. And even though after when he finished, um, uh, well, we both finished at the same time and he was moving back to Hong Kong, which we knew like that was the plan all along, but we didn't want to, you know, sort of be like, it's done. Uh, I mean, it was, it was kind of in some ways because we weren't going to see each other every day. Um, and we weren't going to be able to play practice with each other in the same kind of way, but we still wanted to look for opportunities and, um, you know, continue on and, and, you know, continue to work with each other. Um, so, yeah, shortly after we played in Australia, um, I think I'm, I'm, I think it was the Transplanted Roots uh, Symposium, if I'm remembering correctly. And then um, and then we played at PASIC uh, the following year. And then this then we played in New York for a concert in Brooklyn. Um, so since our yeah, since we were apart, we had played like three times um, in various places. And then that next thing was supposed to be he got a grant for me to come over to um, Hong Kong and then COVID. Uh, so we were, yeah, we were trying to make some things happen. Like I said, like about once a year sort of thing, or, you know, once every, um, you know, nine months kind of thing. And then with learning new pieces, um, we would practice our parts and make sure we had it down. And if needed, uh, we would, uh, Matt, Matt would make a click He's better at that sort of thing than I am right now. Um, and, or, you know, practice with the metronome, whatever, whatever kind of piece it was. And then when we got together, it's like, you better know your part. We only have, you know, a couple of days to work on this or, um, and we get it together. Cause there, there was a couple new pieces that we've learned since then. Um, he did come to Knoxville uh, before we went to PASIC and um, we prepared some things for the concert that we did in New York, which was a couple months later. And so you just find ways to, 
get it together, even when you're living that far apart. With the distance between that you two both have to kind of figure figure some of this out, what are some of the the obvious challenges and the not as obvious challenges that come up when when it, when it is actually time to perform? An obvious challenge was we were like dealing with Zoom before a lot of people were dealing with Zoom, maybe. So we've this is a practice thing, but bef- we were like, let's try to practice with each other over Zoom or like whatever, uh, I don't remember it was FaceTime or Zoom, but, uh, and then we tried and we immediately realized it wasn't going to work, which is like kind of funny now because like everyone knows that now, but we were, you know, it was like two years ago. So we thought like maybe this will work. Um, and then, then we, then what we did was, uh, like I would record my part, um, and like a, a video of my part. And so then we could practice like with that person, like watching that person, um, and then I think then we just recorded um, audio recording because we just realized it, it. We didn't necessarily need to see the person always playing. It didn't because if the hands are moving too fast, it doesn't really look like anything. Um, so yeah, that was like the first kind of duh thing that happened for us with practicing. Right. Um, but it has it. It was really great to kind of to be sending each other um, audio clips of the person practicing rather than just like. Well, practice with the metronome at this, do that too, but um, to actually hear that person playing. So you're, it's like you're playing with them because that's so much more meaningful and similar to what's going to happen in person. I think because we've played with each other so much, it, it, that's how this is possible. Like it wouldn't be possible to start this up if we had never played with each other. And, you know, I just knew him and he lived in Hong Kong and it's like, hey, you want to make a duo? And we'd be starting from like zero. Um, I don't think that would have been possible because we know how each other works and we know how each other plays. And like, um, there's kind of that like back history of all of that. We can make that more easily happen when we come together for such a short period of time. I'm glad you brought up the, the idea of the the video playing so that it is actually more like, it's not obvious, obviously going to be the exact thing, but it's like, I guess that's the going to be the closest you can get yeah. to, to you actually playing together when that's the time. Right. Yeah. Is there an opportunity for, for either him to come here or you to go back out there once this, this all clears up? Yeah. The, I'm hoping that, um, as far as I know that that grant that, that uh, was supposed to bring me out last May is still, you know, in play. Like it's, it's still there. Um, because obviously the organization knows what happened to the world. (laughs) So um, yeah, that should still be fine. And so we would just need to, you know, once borders are open, once we're, you know, I'm allowed to go there, we would just need to figure out a time that that would work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if once you're over there, you're like, I'm just going to be here for bunch yeah <laughs> like, let's, let's, let's get some of this traveling in that i that i wanted to do yeah go go all over different yeah. parts of asia that would be amazing exactly <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's the, it's always the you know the the challenge I, I always think of this going to europe the challenge isn't when you're in europe getting around the the, the continent is actually quite easy you just mm-hmm. got to get there right <laughs> it's not that expensive like to when you're there it's like a flight's like 80 bucks. I'm like, okay, well, we'll go to another country because it's not that Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, cool. Well, let's back up. Um, Abby, where'd you grow up? 
I grew up in Chicago suburbs, um, Buffalo Grove and then Long Grove for the two suburbs. Gotcha. Uh, what, uh, not that I, I know my Chicago, uh, you know, geography very well, but what, where directionally, where is that? Yeah. Northwest area. Okay. Gotcha. Are yeah, you 30, 30-ish, 30-ish, 30 minutes from Chicago city. Okay. Does that put you on the lake? Somewhere or no, no? Um, at like Evanston is on the lake. Okay. Uh, and so it was like 20-ish minutes from Evanston. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, do you have family members in the arts? No, um, but my parents were, especially my dad, was very encouraging um, from a young age of me and my sister both, uh, you know, being in music, uh, she's not professionally in music, but like, um, he, we were to, we took piano lessons since we were five and he like, you know, did not want us to quit. He would really, he like stood with us while we practiced. He really wanted to make sure that we were getting that done. Um, he, I remember him like counting, uh, with me, like next, next to like, you know, above my head, like counting out loud with me. Um, and so, I think that was what really helped me with being able to count out loud with percussion. Cause I remember some of my like colleagues in undergrad, like having a hard time counting out loud while they were playing. And I was like, this is no problem. Probably cause my dad counted next to me when I was a kid. Um, so <laughs> he, yeah, he was really um, encouraging and strict with like making sure that we did, we stayed in piano. Cause he, uh, his parents like let, like let him quit when he was younger and he really regretted not doing an instrument for longer. Uh, so he didn't, he wanted to make sure that didn't happen to us. Um, so yeah, I took piano, uh, through high school, um, and then, um, started, uh, cello when I was a kid, just for like two years through the, the school and then moved to percussion and, um, stuck with percussion, um, in the band program and got a, a private lesson instructor, like outside of school. Um, and, my first instrument with him was drum set. Um, and he was, you know, just a really incredible teacher. So I, I was, you know, became much more interested in, in percussion. When you count out, do you hear your dad's voice? Like, are you, do you feel like you're doing actually an impression of him when you're count, when you're counting out loud? No, but I wish that I did. That's like, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, I, th I feel like, um, the piano teacher, she really wanted us to count out loud. I remember that. And then he, like my parents would sit in on the lessons cause the piano lessons were in her house. Mm. Um, and there was just like a couch there. And so I'm sure that he was listening to what she was saying. And like, he was like, why aren't you counting? And so like, yeah, I just remember that kind of like interaction, but uh, yeah, I don't remember his voice. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is good. This is this uh, this is like an early starting point for your voice and percussion. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's yeah, just yeah, talking while playing. That's great. exactly yeah. You've been doing it the whole time, <laughs> right? <laughs> How far did you get playing piano? Like, what was the most what was like the most difficult level of stuff you were working on? That's such a good question. And I wish I could tell you, I don't, I don't even know what composer to tell you. Cause I was kind of like, I feel bad saying this, but I was, I wasn't all that interested in it. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. 
I was doing it and Mm -hmm. now I feel like if I was doing it, I'd be so much more interested in it and like excited about it. But I think because I like just kind of had to do it and like had to go to lessons, um, that was not my interest in, oh yeah, I was doing percussion at the same time and I was so much more interested in that. And so I was kind of just going through the motions of piano and, and I don't even really remember practicing piano like in high school, even Mm -hmm. though I was still going to lessons. So I don't really know how that worked. Like I'm trying to like think through that. I don't know if I was just kind of like making it happen. Um, but yeah, yeah, I can't even tell you. <laughs> well, you, it, it, probably that you were playing through some of the, like the books, like, like typical yeah. book series kind of stuff, which I, yeah, I wouldn't remember any of the, of the stuff that I worked on in the books. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that I got to like, you know, some of the bigger name composers, um, and those are also in like books. Like I have all the books still in my parents' house, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, I wish I could be like, I played this piece by this person. And right. I should, when I go back home, um, I should like look through and see like what, you know, cause she wrote the dates. And so I should look, oh, yeah. like, okay, this date was kind of towards the end. And what piece was that? Yeah. Right. Then there'll, there'll be a fingering and then there'll be a cross off. Like that's a terrible fingering. Like that'll probably show up on there. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotcha. Um, and what, what ages were you playing cello? I, just because I, I'm just trying to, cause were you playing on a, on a full size or? No, like, okay. no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a small person. I'm five, two now. So, um, I was playing cello in like third and fourth grade. Cause oh, that okay. was in the, yeah, in the music or in the school, uh, that's when orchestra started. Um, and so I knew, I just like wanted to play something. Um, and I, I wanted to play violin and, um, I was I was not allowed to play violin because it was going to be really, my, my dad was like, it's going to be really squeaky <laughs> sounding because, <laughs> you know, beginning violin is, um, yeah, not great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but I, yeah, I played cello and I, I liked it except I didn't like how, yeah, how much it was to like it was as big as me. So it was like a lot to carry. And I remember kind of like being embarrassed of carrying it. I think I carried it on my back. If mm-hmm. I remember that yeah. right. Yep. Um, so yeah, once we got into fifth grade, I was like, I want to start something new. I want to be done with this cello. Um, and then, yeah, the funny thing is, and then I went into percussion, which is just like, you got to carry like way more stuff, but you don't know that at the time because you're just carrying the little bell case that right. has the, the snare, the pad and the bell kit. Um, I wanted to play uh, flute when we went into band, like, you know, a lot of like little girls want to do, uh, but I couldn't make any sound on the flute. So they, they knew I played, they knew I played a uh, pr- uh, piano. And so they were like, Oh, can you like read this on the bell kit? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's nothing. Cause it's yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> The top line. So I'm like, do, 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 yeah, yeah. what else do you want? Just, just the top line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you're killing the, the reason I started cracking up is that the, when I took woodwind methods, the flute, I could not do the flute at all. I made like nine notes in the three weeks I had that instrument. It was, yeah. it was a, it was a disaster. So that's so why I was like, yep, I know what it means to not be able to play a note. On <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They like give it to you. And I'm like, like nothing. <laughs> like, okay, I'll give it back. <laughs> yeah. Blow across. I am, right? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I had no experience with any sort of woodwind type. So, I mean, it was, 
I wasn't expecting to make any sound on any of those instruments. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said, you were saying, um, was it bells or was it drum set was your first? Well, so I guess bells was the first thing because that was the band program and that's what all the, um, the students play first bells and then that the little drum pad. Um, but then I, uh, I had a drum set, uh, a percussion teacher, um, soon after, um, I started playing percussion in band. And one of the first things that we, I did with him was, uh, was drum set. I think like the, su the summer after I started with him, um, I, I went to overnight camp and my dad and him, uh, found a drum set for me. And I came back that summer and there was a drum set in the basement and it was just like, wow, like that was an amazing surprise. Um, and so then we started working on drum set. That was his, his sort of main instrument. Um, and so he was, uh, the percussionist drummer for this local theater in town. It's like this uh, Marriott hotel that has, um, uh, musicals that go on all the time. Um, and so, you know, he, he played drum set and he played, he played all percussion, like everything that was in the, the musical. He never taught me sort of to read those, those charts, those like musical mm -hmm. books. That was never something that we went over surprisingly. Um, but I did like sit in there in the pit with him uh, sometimes. And that was really cool to, to watch him do that. Yeah. Do you but, remember? But yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just asked, do, do you remember any of the shows that, that he played for? Um, I mean, my family, we would, we would go to all those shows. I don't remember specifically which ones um, I sat in the pit for, but yeah, it was the, that feed, they did like all the classics. Yeah. Mm, they, okay. Yeah. But that was something that my, my parents um, were subscribers to, to that theater. So uh, I grew up going to musicals all the time. That was like the big thing for my family. We didn't, they weren't subscribers to an orchestra, but musicals and probably because it was like kind of in town, that was the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, because I was thinking, obviously, as you know, like the, there's a big difference between like the, the Sound of Music book and uh, Sunday in the Park with George. <laughs> Basically, any Sondheim is a different book than all of the yeah. other books. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there'd be because then because then you have to actually like lower yourself into a crane needs to lower you into the pit. <laughs> yeah. For, for Sondheim. <laughs> I mean, they definitely had um, a smaller area to do things so they had they could they had to choose things that would work for for them and uh, or you know pare it down whatever it may be yeah got it um when you get to high school and you start doing band is there a marching component there was um and definitely not the type of marching uh band that a lot of uh like people go through that I that that I learned about when I got into um when I went to undergrad uh I had heard about like much more involved marching band and drum corps and I didn't know about any of that stuff so it was more or less, uh lesser involved I guess smaller scale marching band but like we didn't have a, I don't think we had like a special person in in charge of the drum line or if we did it was kind of like a temporary person who was a like a, a um a student teacher or something, but, um, yeah, not super, um, 
not like a really amazing marching band is kind of what I'm trying to say. Um, and I did not love it. I was not, uh, I was not like, um, gung ho about being in the marching band. Gotcha. It did, it kind of just facilitated the football thing. And then it was like, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't do competitions. Um, we did like local parades. Mm -hmm. Oh um, yeah. And yeah, we, I mean, we had like chart, we had the charts where you learn how to do the different steps. Um, so I do remember like having to like learn how to move my feet in the certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it just wasn't like an amazing experience for me. Yeah. Gotcha. When you're doing all these, uh, musical items, are you involved in anything else? Are you doing any sports, student government, church related activities, anything else to fill out your time? Yeah, I did cross country and track, um, in, like starting my sophomore year in high school. Um, and I was doing like ice skating, I think still and uh, gymnastics, maybe I forget when I stopped doing that. Oh. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. That might've been just part of um, high school or that could have, I forget when that all stopped and started. Um, but yeah, I was definitely transitioning more into running uh, mm -hmm. And then when I went to Lawrence, I also was on the cross country team for, um, at Lawrence and, and track team. Um, oh, so that sweet. was, yeah, that was a big part of my life for a long time. Like, um, you know, early morning workouts and sometimes two a day workouts, depending on, you know, the situation, but yeah, managing that with practicing was a thing. And then I ended up, um, at Lawrence, I ended up stopping, I ended up quitting the team just because I wanted to focus more on percussion. Yeah. Yeah. But it was I, great to do, to do it. I was, I'm really happy that I did do a sport in college. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. I have to think about this. I remember a, a person that I went to college with who did cross country told me the mileage that they ran a week during the season. And I was like, like <laughs> how, how do you fit that? How do you possibly have time to, it was an ungodly amount. I don't, what was, what was the expected running mileage when you were, for I mean, it, it really depended on like what point in the season you were in. And yeah. also male and female is, is different too. Um, okay. I mean like a long run for the week, depending on like what part of the season you're in could be like 12 miles. Mm -hmm. And then a short run could be like three or five miles. Mm -hmm. So then if you're doing, um, at different, know, could, would these be at different paces? Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So like the 12 mile long run, you'd be like talking to each other. Right. Um, but yeah, if I tried to do that now, I, like, I would not be talking to someone. <laughs> 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 so yeah, it just, the mileage, it, yeah, it wasn't like consistently. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I have to add it up. I don't remember exactly how much was pre, but yeah, that's just a comparison of like sometime a long run would be like 12 miles uh, on like a Saturday, or sometimes it would be like eight miles um, or six miles. But then for men, it could be like much longer than 12 miles um, just because their race was also longer. So that was, mm. that was part of it, why their mileage should be longer. And yeah. How long was the women's race? So the women's race was 5K or 6K. And then yep. I think the men's race was maybe 6K or 8K or 9K. I'm, yeah, I'm not yep. remembering. How are your like joints and hips and everything? Are they, everything still okay? 
Yeah, actually, okay, I'm fine. I've, and um, I, when I stopped with the team, um, I actually, like, since that point in my life, I haven't run a lot. I haven't been, like, a consistent runner. Uh, mm-hmm. some, every, like, once in a while, I'll be like, I should start running again. And I, like, kind of do it for a little bit. But um, I think it's hard to be, like, motivated um, and have not, – maybe not motivated, but um, – yeah. Go out there on your own when you had such like a regimented program and like had all these people to run with. Um, uh, so I like, I really enjoyed that part of it. And like, you know, having these specific workouts and like the coaches there and like they're timing you and like doing all these different things. And there's, you're going towards a goal. Like the, the race is like so intense and like, you know, it's, it's very competitive um, yeah. Or it can be if if you allow yourself to get into that and like, or you could just be like running it for fun and like whatever. There were people on the team that definitely did that. Um, but uh, going from that to like just like going for a run outside by yourself is like so different. Um, and so I just kind of never made that transition really well. Um, and now I enjoy other kinds of like exercise rather than running and. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's like why I haven't really had uh, joint problems, like you say. <laughs> <laughs> what what else? What do you prefer doing now? I like going to the gym and like um, d- doing different like weight things, mm-hmm. like uh, weight lifting. That sounds like I'm a bodybuilder, but I'm obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> the year before COVID, I started going to this gym that is sort of. I guess I compare it most to CrossFit, but it's not cross. It was not CrossFit, but it was like, you go there and they um, there's a coach and you're doing all the things with the group and with the coach. Um, and so I learned how to like lift for the first time. Cause I had never done that before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really great. I really enjoyed that. And then sadly they closed down with COVID. Um, sure. So I've been, but I've been trying to do some of those things on my own. Um, like, you know, just deadlift and back squat and uh, just different um, things with kettlebells. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I just enjoy doing that kind of stuff. And then like pair that with a little bit of cardio at the gym. So just making like little workouts is fun for me. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you really enjoy the social aspect of these things too, which I mean, it's it's important. It, it doesn't mean that the workouts are any less difficult. It's just that you have, it's like you get to chance to bounce these kind of, uh, these aggressions against something. And it's like, all right, cool. (laughs) (laughs) When things are, you know, a little more stable and more people have the vaccine, I, yeah, I would like to join some of the classes that, um, are at the gym and, uh, yeah, that would be fun. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, you were also at Lawrence doing percussion, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, we got, we got into the sports first, but yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a, the conservatory of music at, right. at Lawrence. Yeah. So what was kind of the philosophy of the percussion program for undergrad there? The professor is Dane Richeson mm-hmm. and he's just incredible. Um, yeah. Like just like a force. Uh, and I believe his philosophy is um, uh, being well-rounded uh, because, you know, that's what we, what we had to do. Um, and he is a great drum set player and he definitely knows his way around um, 
the various mallet instruments and uh, orchestral instruments. Uh, but then he uh, also really brings a lot to the table in terms of um, um, African music and uh, Afro-Cuban and Brazilian music. Um, and so the big thing um, was we were like all percussion majors and I believe minors were required to uh, be part of um, the Ewe, the African Ensemble, the Brazilian Ensemble, and the Afro-Cuban Ensemble. And um, depending on the semester was when those things would happen. Like, I don't think we had all three every semester, but I think we had two of the three every semester. And so it wasn't just like, oh, you can like, you know, be in this if you want to be in it. Like, no, you have to do it if you're going to be in this program. Um, so kind of uh, getting all the different um, styles of music um, like straight away when you're a freshman is like, wow, you know, you're being hit with it and it's a lot and it was hard. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I, I, it really put me through it. Um, but it made me so much stronger and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I think his big thing is like, you need to be well-rounded in all of these areas and really know what's going on. Yeah. Well, although the way that you kind of phrased it, that it made it sound like you, you, that was there a point where you're like, is this what I really want to do? Just because of the amount of stuff that you're having to cover or were you just completely in when you were there? No, I was, I was completely in. Um, okay. I think I didn't, I came from a, like uh, a band program that I believe did not prepare me as well as some other students in there, or I was just less, um, knowledgeable in a lot of areas than, uh, some of my peers. And so I worked really hard to, to get myself up there and to, to keep working. Um, but I was, I was committed. I, I wanted to be there and, um, yeah, I, I, I loved being there, uh, but it doesn't mean it was easy. It was, it was, it was hard. Yeah. It really, I, yeah, I practiced a lot and, um, uh, he was, he was hard on us. He was, he really expected a lot from his students, which um, I'm someone that like thrives from that. Like I, uh, that, that did not like deter me. I wanted to keep pushing. Was there a fair amount of turnover with students? No. no. Okay. <laughs> Good. No, that's great. I mean, and it's a, it's a small studio. So yeah. um, I would say there's about like 12, students like approximately during the time I was there you know people would graduate and people would come in and yeah so how were you how was the schedule working to make for the time that you did the athletics part how was that fitting into around what was going on if you were free for the uh the practice Mm -hmm. the uh, uh cross-country practice or track practice in the afternoon which is like when it would normally be then yeah. you would go to that Mm -hmm. um, and if there was like an ensemble rehearsal then, and you couldn't go to that, then, um, there would maybe be a morning practice that you could go to, or like, it, there may not be an actual like scheduled morning practice and people just get together and, and run at, at a time that they could all meet. So it was very understanding because, I mean, there's this whole conservatory that makes up a, like a, a decent portion of the student body. And so they knew that there were going to be some people um, who had these music commitments and that was just part of it. Oh, okay. What kinds of stuff did you play on your, on your undergrad recital then with all these different experiences going on? Yeah. I played a concerto, 
uh, with a pianist that um, it was Chen Yi's percussion concerto and it had voice in it. So that was like one of my big voice things, like the second movement, um, forgetting if it was Mandarin or Cantonese, but it was, um, I learned how to speak that with, I, I think I like worked with someone on how to speak those different words. It was like really uh, one of my first experiences doing that kind of thing. Um, and then I played um, the She Who Sleeps with a Small Blanket by mm-hmm. Kevin Volans. Yeah. I played one of the movements from Paul Lansky's, um, the, is the piece called Hop or, uh, I forget. The that's hard the one or the other hard one? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, it, I think it was above me for the time, but I worked so hard on it. I like really practiced my butt off. Yeah. Um, but that's a great piece. I could come back to that and it would still be so hard. I mean, yeah, yeah it's, right. it's like the hardest thing. That's what I, um, I've had a, a few people have, they bring that piece up and they're like, that piece is so hard. <laughs> yeah. All sorts of professionals, they like pl- try to play it in concert and it just like, whew, you know, <laughs> goes away or, yeah. you know, it just like doesn't t- come out the way you want it to come out. Yeah. Um, and there might've been one other, oh, I forget if this was, because I think I played a couple concerts, a couple recitals at Lawrence, but I know that I did play um, the Christos Hatzi's, um uh, one of his ones with a track that the person's rapping behind it. Um, hmm. But yeah, I can't remember the title right now. So do you go right to NYU right after that? I had, then I went to uh, University of Toronto for right. a year. Yeah. And um, I studied with Beverly Johnston there. Um, and that was amazing uh, just to be able to work with her and, um, I did a recital there too. I don't know if I could remember everything I did there, but um, yeah, from there, then I went to NYU. Was that intentionally a year? No, that was supposed to be uh, my master's. And I decided that, um, yeah, it just wasn't the right fit for me. Uh, Studying with her was amazing. And I'm so, I'm actually really glad that I had that year there with her. Um, But I think just, yeah, this, this, the program overall and living in Toronto, um, I just wasn't super happy in that situation. Um, and yeah, I don't like looking back on it. I'm not totally sure if I could like put my finger on exactly what it was. I just know that like, I wasn't feeling myself and it could also just been coming from this like super tight knit community at Lawrence and then going to like a much larger school, like such a big difference, like a huge, huge school like University of Toronto and like Lawrence is like a school of like a thousand five hundred people so and then you know a big small small town big city yeah I think there was just a couple different factors um but all to say that I'm I'm still really glad that I had that year there what was kind of something similar different that Beverly Johnson you work with her on that you was you compared to something you worked with Dane Richardson on I mean, I feel like they're really different. Mm-hmm. One of the pieces um, that we worked on uh, at Toronto was uh, Alternate, Alternate, Alternate Currents is the title by Anne Southam. Um, and it's this piece for vibraphone and gongs. And I believe it was written for Beverly. And Anne Southam is like this well-known Canadian composer um, who has passed. 
uh, I think somewhat recently. Uh, and yeah, so, um, yeah, they just have like completely different teaching styles. Um, and she, uh, not that Dane wouldn't do this, but she, since she knew the piece so well, um, she would just get in there and like be playing things. And, and I think I was trying to, to play a piece that she knew like that. And so that like, it would be that kind of experience. What was Dane more of a, like hands off telling, this is what you need to fix, go fix kind of thing or. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to remember a specific like piece example. It's been so many years now. Sure. It's hard to remember like a specific yeah. piece uh, working on him with that, but um, yeah, I mean, he was very like straight to the point and like, you know, this is, this is not good. You need to go back and fix this. Like they're, you know, very blunt. Um, and then I think when something like was good, um, you know, he wasn't going to be like, wow, so great. Amazing. Where Bev might be more, um, complimentary like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Dane would at, at a recital when you're done with the recital, he would be very smiley and like give you a hug, but you're not going to like get a smiley hug from him. Like in a, in a lesson, just be like, good next. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. Yeah. That is a good comparison. I, I think in terms of, uh, that is actually like a legit teaching difference is that kind of, and, you know, and figuring out as a student, how much of, how much reinforcement is going to work for you. I mean, did you, at the time when you, like you, you had this, you know, wonderful experience with, with Beverly, did you think, were you, was that like a, you enjoyed hearing that versus what you didn't get? Or was it like, all right, well, this is how she reacts and I'm still, I'm still fine. (laughs) Because they have such different personalities. You just have like, I just, yeah, she's a very positive person. And so like, she's going to be more complimentary or, or, but also she was also like, you know, this isn't good here. You know, you need to work on this part. So it wasn't just all like, you know, roses. It was also like, this part needs to be fixed. Yeah. So there was, there was both sides with her too. Got it. And roses are expensive. It should be noted. You can't, (laughs) you can't give those out all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, in, in my own teaching, it's definitely, um, you, you, like, I want to be straightforward, but then I also want to, you know, when, when it, when they do a good job, you know, compliment them. And, um, sometimes with, with younger kids, I am worried. I'm like, am I giving too many compliments? Like, I don't want to like over inflate what right. they're doing, but at the same time, I do want them to feel really positive about making music. And so I think there is like definitely a difference with teaching younger kids and then teaching, you know, university students or older, uh, older students, like, you know, on the, on like the level of like, I don't know if it's positivity, but like the idea of, of how much you put that into the lesson. Cause, because you want them to continue on with music. You don't want it to be a negative experience, but the older students, like they, they get it a little more, like maybe they're in it more because they want to be there and they're not being forced by their parents, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it feels like it's the, they've chosen the field and now it's like, now we can really, now you're going to get the buzzsaw. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to get, gonna get into it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so how do you know about and decide to go to NYU to, to finish out your master's? Yeah. I had auditioned there before. Um, so like that was one of my choices to go. Um, and so I had met 
some, some of the professors there and I had visited there for the audition. Um, and so it was in the back of my mind. And so I had reached out to Jonathan Haas and, um, what I had decided that I was going to be leaving Toronto. And I was like, can I come here a year later? Uh, what do you think? And so I was able to just kind of move into that program without going through the audition process again, like without waiting a year. Um, so that was honestly one of the main things is I wanted to stay in school. I knew I, it wasn't like I wanted to take a break. I wanted to keep moving forward with the degree and, and um, you know, playing percussion and all of those things. So uh, yeah, kind of being in contact with him and just moving into that program straight in, into that next fall. Cause I had decided in the summer um, that I was going to leave. Uh, so yeah, that, that was, it was a fairly easy transition. Did you have a assistantship at NYU? Um, I eventually, because I had been coming, came in at a weird time, I did not originally. And then I eventually had a work study job with the percussion studio. I've never, I've never met, Jonathan Haas, but he strikes me as intense. Would that be fair? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> definitely fair, but very, like very sweet man. Um, and, uh, yeah, I would say the intensity comes out in, um, the percussion ensemble rehearsals, you know, like we're doing a big piece, we're doing ballet mechanique or we're doing ionization. And like, you know, there's all these different things. And he has like all these different like great ideas about how the parts all work and, you know, you're not doing it. So like, let's get this. So yeah, that's when the intensity really comes out. And then also um, he helped me with my uh, audition tapes for um, the doctoral programs that I was applying for. And so that is also when I, you know, really felt that like it was great. He was in the studio and with me during that process. And it was kind of like, do it again, do it again. Like, <laughs> so that was, you know, when that sort of, bluntness, but in a good way, because, you know, you want the best, you want the best take, you want the best option to put out there uh, came through. At that point, what do you feel like are the things that you need work on as a, as a musician? Because, the, you know, you've been through two other programs that you've, so it's like, how much of it is, is it a technique thing? Is it a mind thing at this point? What are the things that you're, are focused on when you get to the masters with Haas? I mostly studied not with Haas, actually. I only studied with him for a semester, and that was during that time when I was doing my auditions. Um, so I mostly studied with um, James Separito, and he's um, a um, percussionist with the New York City Ballet. Um, and he's very, he's like more old school style percussion playing. We did a lot of Wilcoxon and um, Rags, uh, xylophone, mm. green. And so that was uh, what, like, I spent a lot of time working on, honestly, and I hadn't done a lot of that before, uh, just because we touched on that at Lawrence. Um, and yeah, uh, but the, I don't remember if, we'll, if I, I'm sure there was like a few Wilcoxon that came up in snare drum. And I spent like a year on snare drum with Dane, um, but um, I don't know if that was like, I don't think that was a big focus. So going, kind of going back to it after so many years with James was really good. And, um, yeah, he's an amazing snare drum player and, and xylophone player. And that's kind of like his thing. Um, and so, yeah, 
I felt like he and I both felt like that could use work. So that's what we did. I, and I was wondering, I mean, did you do excerpts at that point or no? Yeah, definitely worked on some excerpts. Um, and that kind of went into some with Jonathan too, because um, those were needed for some of the auditions. So, uh, and so that, yeah, snare drum, xylophone, um, timpani as well. Yeah, and with, and with Jonathan, obviously, timpani. I don't want to mean to keep asking you about your recitals, but, I, but I'm curious, like with the, the, the types of things you were studying at yeah. NYU, what, were, what ended up being on your recitals? The recitals were still music that um, I was most interested in, which, I mean, to be fair, like it wasn't like I, all my interests then changed to, you know, xylophone rags. Like it sure. wasn't like, wow, this is like my newfound thing. Like it, like, I, it was cool, but it wasn't like I'm going to now be a xylophone ragist. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was still like contemporary, uh, you know, new music uh, percussion. Um, and I also had a semester with Simon uh, Boyer, which is he's the marimba um, specialist there. And um, so I did um, ref- some of the reflection mm-hmm. movements from Druckmann. Yep. Um, I did this David Lang toy piano piece, mm. um, which has, it says like pipes on the top. So it's kind of like a multi slash toy piano piece. Um, I played Raybone's A and I played, um, I played a trio that's by uh, Sarah, Sarah Crooklyn Snyder. Um, and I was playing marimba on that. I'm forgetting the title of the piece right now. Oh, Thread and Fray is the title. Um, and I think there was another marimba piece, but I'm not remembering right now. But yeah, so it was still in the contemporary vein, um, even though a lot of the things I was working on maybe weren't that. Yeah. So like, yeah, my own interests kind of on the side of the bulk of what I was working on in lessons. Yeah. Did you like living in New York City? Yes, I loved it. And I'm so glad that even if like, I never lived there again, which would be cool to live there again. Um, I'm so glad I had that experience of living there. Like that was amazing. And I recommend it to anyone who's like thinking about it, remotely thinking about it is obviously now it's, it's changed, but yeah, it was so good to live there. Like such a great, like, you know, learning experience as a young person, um, you know, navigating the subway system and, um, yeah, going out to different bars and restaurants and uh, different parks there. Um, yeah, going, being able to go to different shows and all the amazing, um, you know, theaters there and small jazz clubs. It was so good. <laughs> and and you were living in a, an apartment that is about the size of the piano that you're sitting next to, I'm going to guess. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you don't spend any time there. You just, right. you just sleep and that's it. <laughs> yeah, my kitchen was like, I never cooked. Oh, <laughs> well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> right. <laughs> Particularly when you have all the sushi, you gotta you gotta catch up. Oh on my that. god! Yeah, right. <laughs> so <laughs> we that sounds talking, like we were, t- we were talking about the sushi the other day. I, I was like, I wonder if that restaurant still exists. And like, he was like, it does. He must have like looked it up recently. Mm. And then I and then I googled it. And I'm like, oh my god, we have to go back there. Like, we have to visit and go there. So yes all the sushi. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying that the, the sushi level in Knoxville uh, leaves a little to be desired. 
Yeah. I mean, I still love sushi and I, I get it like somewhat regularly, but yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. Compared to New York or other places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point you can get like pretty good sushi from most supermarkets, you know, like, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's okay. It's okay. Yes. And it's a sushi like thing that you can enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why now head to Stony Brook for your doctorate? Um, I, well, I had heard amazing things about Eduardo Leandro, the professor there. Um, and, you know, just the focus on contemporary music was, you know, what, what I was and what I am really interested in. Um, and the fact that, you know, that the percussion program, like, you know, that's what the focus is on. And that's what the, the ensemble is on. Like, and it wasn't really billed as a percussion ensemble. Um, it's more um, like a contemporary ensemble. And so sometimes it's percussion and sometimes um, it's, you know, other instruments are involved. It's, just, it's, it's kind of like a little bit of like Niefnarf. It's, it's whatever piece we want to program for, for that concert. And then we'll, we'll get the players from, from the, the rest of the graduate program at the school. Um, and then the other interesting thing about the the program is, uh, it is like a graduate program. There, there is like an undergraduate component, but the, like the bulk of the program, the music program at Stony Brook is graduate students. And, um, uh, there are so many great, uh, like studios, like the piano studio is amazing there. And, and there's so many just amazing students that come in from lots of great uh, schools, like lots of Juilliard students come in. Um, just so many different uh, students are coming there from um, from really great programs from around around the country, around the world. So just seemed like an amazing place to collaborate with people and that, that and they were going to be interested in contemporary music. What do you feel, find is the thing that you need or this program needs to kind of get you to kind of your next thing? That's a good question. I, um, I guess I wanted to like hone in more of, um, my, like my focus and, um, yeah, like what I wanted to contribute and like bring forward, which, you know, I think I'm still doing and what maybe we're all still doing even after the degree. And like, for me, that was going to be in this contemporary new music area. Um, and so was it yeah, also, maybe, was the focus on the voice part as, as a factor now, like for real? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I had started working. Um, I remember starting to work on um, that the all your thens for now vibraphone piece when I start started to practice it when I was at NYU like I remember being in the like the practice facilities there and like some people like like making fun of me a little bit like because it's it's weird and like some some people haven't heard of music like that before and but then strange, I actually so it's like a strange piece if you're walking by the practice room and you're and you're working on it and they're like is she okay like is it right <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And so I do remember starting to practice that, like maybe in the summertime or something at NYU before I went on to Stony Brook. Um, And then I I think I actually um, uh, performed the connection at my NYU recital. Um, Now that I think about it, that that I may have been like thinking about it through those other years that I mentioned, um, but maybe the first time I actually performed it, maybe. Or, or another performance of it was at that recital. So people had like heard me start to, um, or I was starting to get out more, a little more of the speaking stuff. 
Um, but yeah, really uh, getting more into it at, at Stony Brook. Um, and Eduardo does uh, some of those types of pieces too. Um, and um, so, yeah, it just seemed like a great place to explore more of that and just more contemporary music and collaborate collaboration um, type music in general. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm very much interested in um, playing with other musicians, whether that is, you know, actual ensemble pieces um, or like I mentioned before of uh, that collaborative idea of uh, working with the composer. And there is a great composition program there too. How would you compare his teaching style to the others? I was trying to play pieces and then me and Matt were also trying to play some pieces that he knew, um, mm -hmm. which I think is really great, especially, you know, if you're, you're going to study with this person, um, like, you're studying with them for a certain reason. Um, and so, yeah, we really liked the repertoire that he had played in the past. And so to play pieces that he knew really well. And so he would get on the marimba and just be like, this is how I did it. And it's just like, wow. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Please stop because you're... you're... <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that was really great that he would just like, you know, be very helpful in that way with sticking ideas um, for some really tricky stuff. Yeah, very um, hands-on, like everyone else, you know, straightforward when it needed to be. And then also like, um, he, you know, he's very, he's very bubbly personality, very kind um, and, you know, very ex excitable. Like when, when things are going, like when we're playing really well, like me and Matt have worked something up. If it's, a, if it's, a, if it's like we had like duo lessons, um, you know, and we're getting it, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna show it and like, you know, be really happy about our progress. Um, but then also like, let us know when it, you know, like, this is no good. Like, <laughs> you know, you need to like work on this some more. Um, so yeah, I think he was a really great teacher and um, he's, uh, he, I, I was someone that like uh, really scheduled lessons out with him. And so I felt like I really got a lot from all that he had to offer. I really like, was like, we're going to schedule all these lessons. And um, I really liked that we, you don't have to have a lesson every week when you're in grad, when you're in, in yeah. the doctoral program, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, give me a lesson. And then two or three weeks later, let's have another lesson and see the progress. And so I think that's a really great part of, of that as well as um, you can have more time to work on things. My uh, mentor was, I would be like, I I'm, I'm okay this week. He's like, okay, great. <laughs> it's like, good. I have an hour right. for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and the, the other thing with Eduardo is like, he, he was someone that would, you know, go on and on in a good way. Like, you know, if we could have two hours and that was, that felt really great that he was, you know, just so passionate about continuing to want to talk and share and yeah. Yeah. That's great. What's the, at, at Stony Brook, what is the concluding capstone document or recite? How, how do they do that there? Yeah. There's a final recital. Um, and so it's more important than the other. We have, I think we had like six total recitals um, and we don't have a dissertation. Um, so it kind of makes up for that. Uh, with the final recital, you have, um, you have to sort of pass off before you have that final recital, you um, have this like oral presentation um, where a couple of the faculty members, including your professor, um, ask you questions about the different pieces that you're gonna present. So. Yeah, they could ask you like anything about these pieces, anything about the composers, about the history of that time that the pieces were written or about the actual piece. And I think the pieces, I had them set up in the room. So I think maybe I like played parts of them um, or maybe even the whole piece. 
kind of forgetting right now. Um, and yeah, so it was kind of like a pre recital, um, presentation of the piece. Um, and then, yeah, instead we had a DMA paper, which was like a larger version of one of the papers we had written in one of the courses. So that was kind of like sort of instead of the dissertation, but I feel like this final recital, um, situation was more instead of that dissertation because we just had to prepare so much information about the different pieces. All right. Well, let's move to our final segment, random ass questions. So, uh, okay. first, <laughs> all right. First question, uh, first couple are not random. First question is what's an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? It's a good question. I don't know. Maybe that like one part of our field is more important than another part, like that people feel very strongly about um, marimba versus drum corps uh, versus rudimental drumming. Um, and just because I've never done drum corps, I don't feel that it is less important or more important. Um, and so just sometimes you see in forums or posts or whatever that people feel strong, very strongly that one should be definitely done or not done. And so, yeah, that I, I, I think that all, all different areas um, be important and like should be considered equally. And, and given the same kind of value. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It seems like, why are we, why are we so angry about this? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Like, like we could definitely get value from being in drum corps as like a, a young person coming up and then like take that, you know, knowledge and, and skill and information with you into, you know, orchestral playing or, you know, whatever else you decide to do. And, and I, I've seen that happen for, you know, colleagues of mine and it's an incredible. And, and just because I didn't have that experience doesn't mean that like I'm against it or, you know, whatever, or it's same for whatever, same for like, if say you started on, uh, jazz vibes or piano and like taking that knowledge and then, you know, bringing that into whatever you decide to do next or continuing with that. And there's just so much doubt that, like you said, that we could get from all these different areas. And like, there's no need to be against each other or have that sort of feeling. And a lot of people aren't, but it seems like some, there is kind of like, there can be this divide of these different groups. Well said. All right. Next question. Take this wherever you want. Um, being a woman in the mostly male field of percussion. Floor is yours. <laughs> I don't like to think of myself as like a woman percussionist and sure. just like to think of myself as a percussionist. Um, but that being said, I'm, I'm positive that um, I've been affected or, you know, because um, of being a woman um, in this field and especially like a, a, as a student. Um, and um, yeah, and it's hard to like, look, looking back on it, um, it I, uh, I kind of like remember different things, but in the moment, um, I don't know if I was really thinking like, oh, this is because I'm a woman. Um, I think at the time I felt that it was just like, oh, it's because I'm not like good enough and I need to get better and I need to practice more. Um, and then I'll get these opportunities or then this person won't say this thing to me in this way. Um, and so the biggest thing for me is I feel like as I've gotten more confident and as I've, you know, 
become a better player and practice more and um, just grown, like be grown older. Um, that is kind of what has helped me the most as a person and as a percussionist. Um, and yeah, it's really hard to like separate the two of those things out. It's hard to be like, this is like the woman percussionist part of me. And this is like the part of me that um, has sort of just developed as a person and as a player. Um, and so like for me, when I was younger, it was more like uh, maybe a lot, maybe some of those things were being said to me because I was a woman, but I felt them because I was not confident. I like that you made that, that distinction about the, that the, like, yeah, which is it? Yeah. And, and because, I mean, and it doesn't just apply to women then because a lot of, you know, young students, whatever their gender may be, like, you know, we, we, we all feel like not confident at some point in our life, even, even as professionals and as adults, like yeah. <laughs> all the time. So it is hard to sort of parse out like what is being said to us for what reasons, obviously, if it's like a comment that is very much about your gender, then clearly it's about that. Right. But like looking back, it's, it's hard to, rem like, I, I guess, Maybe I guess I, maybe I've been lucky that I don't remember specific times when someone is like, you're a woman, so like you shouldn't be doing this. Like I, I haven't necessarily had a lot of those experiences that have been very like affected on me. So that that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like there there were times that I was kind of like put down in different in different ways. Um, and I always kind of assumed it was for um, other reasons but it could have been because I'm a small woman in this field. Like a, like a, like a thing about like how loud you can play or something. Like. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, now that I'm thinking about it more, there was a time um, when I was at NYU and I was um, playing uh, with one of the professors for like uh, a summer program thing. We were hired to play and there was this uh, older person that was a percussionist that was uh, also hired to play. He was from like a different state. Like he, he like flew in for this and he was making some like more derogatory comments or just like not talking to me or it was just very strange. And I remember like, yeah, it was, uh, I was like kind of taken aback because it was not normal. Like, and it was just confusing to me. It was like, you know, you're not even that great. Like, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> no, I, and I, I, I actually, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that part about the, it's like the, it, like an insider club or something like that, like not even communicating to you in that, in like a, prof, like that kind of way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Talking around someone. Right. Here. Yeah. The, the, the whispering or something like, and then, oh. yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's get to some other questions. All right. What is the most impractical? This is this is very different now. So, <laughs> what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Well, like looking around my my apartment. <laughs> well, in Knoxville, like there's a lot of things I haven't worn in a long time because I'm from you know the Chicago area. So, like right now, the most impractical item is like winter boots, right? Um, and like really heavy clothes like that. That's one thing you can think of. Uh, just because I, yeah, I have like this whole supply of like super warm clothes, like, yeah, all these are kind of gloves and like scarves and things. And like, it does get cold sometimes, but like, you know, not as cold and like, you just like, you know, run outside and run back in if it's cold. But um, yeah, I would say that's 
goal for my life right now. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Because you, because you've lived for, for a long time in New York, what's your, do you have any very specific train experiences with the Long Island Railroad or subway, yeah. whatever? Oh, I wish I should. There was a period of time when I was taking the, tr- this, the Long Island subway, like um, every single day during the week or almost every single day um, because I had this job, this teaching artist job um, like in Brooklyn um, or in uh, Manhattan. And, you know, it's a long commute. So it's like an hour and a half each way. Yeah. And um, yeah, I can't remember a specific story, but just like seeing like the businessmen on the train and just imagining like, you know, this is their life every single day. Um, and I wish I had a, I wish I could think of a good story, but just like, yeah. Imagining like, what if this was my life every single, I was just doing this for like a period of time, like whatever my contract was for like two months. Um, but that they live out in the suburbs and they are on the train for like, you know, three hours every single day of their life, their life was something big to think about. Um, it was so exhausting. Like I just, I, I had, I, yeah, there was a certain time I had to like stop. Like I, yeah, I just did it for a short period of time and I was like, I cannot continue this anymore. Or I went to like two days a week or something, but to do it every single day of the week was, you know, you just not get anything done. Um, yeah, I can't remember anything like crazy. I'm sure crazy things have happened, but (laughs) how often did you, when you were at Stony Brook, did you have to tell people, they'd be like, we're going to meet in, like, we're going to meet in Manhattan. You're like, uh, hold on. <laughs> I yeah. cannot just, I can't, I, it's not close. I just want to be <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, I think most people that lived in Manhattan, like understood the, yeah. the, the trains or they, they got where Stony Brook was. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I also had a car. So there were a couple times where I, you, I mean, you had to have a car if you lived on Long Island, um, yeah. that I would drive if it was like to Queens, you know, yeah. um, yeah, getting to Queens was a lot easier to do. So then I just could hop on twenty five A. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I grew up. I grew up on North uh, near Glen Cove and Oyster Bay in Nassau County. Oh, okay. Um, so North. So that's so that highway is is like twenty minutes from my where I grew up. Yeah. So, and I know that road not necessarily to go east, mm-hmm. but but to go, but definitely like yeah, Queens to the airports. Like it's all. It's all pretty close to there. Yeah. So had you, had you, have you been to Stony Brook at all? I mean, if it, if it, it would have been a quick stop, I mean, it was not yeah. for any long okay. period of time. Cause again, that's not, we just didn't spend like, I, like any time we made a trip when I, when I was growing up, it was to the city. It was sure. never like yeah, I went, yeah. I would, there was a period of time. I think I was in Florida with like vacation with, with because I had family down in Florida more often than I had been to Suffolk County. Um, like yeah. that's how, like, it, but this is, I'm, I'm, I cannot imagine this is a, this is an atypical story for somebody who grew up there. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. I mean, and the, the Island is so big, like yes. that was another shock to me. Like I had, you know, I had lived in, living in New York and then like, okay, moving out to Long Island yeah. and I, I was like shocked at how long it was going to take me to, you know, get from Stony Brook back to Manhattan. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you had said like, oh, you know, did someone not realize how long it was taking you? I was that person. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that that was the commute initially. And then obviously I learned. And then yeah. also I was like, oh, it would be cool to like go to the Hamptons because like I'm on Long Island. And then it's like, you know, 
a day later, <laughs> like, why is this so far? And yeah. it's because you hear about like these celebrities, like, you know, getting to Manhattan, but I'm sure they're like flying there or yeah. something. Yeah. Oh, so I, I think with my, I think my parents came to visit and we did go to some part of the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we must've just like done the, however long hour trip it took. Um, yeah. so yeah, I did go there like once or twice, uh, yeah. which was, which was cool, but, um, yeah, it, it's so much bigger than you realize. Yeah. And it's like, you got like some different parts. Cause the, like the, the towns that are actually named under the Hamptons are, you know, mostly like they're mostly houses, but like, right. if you go to Sag Harbor or yeah, Montauk yeah, yeah. are yeah, super Montauk. cool. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. We, my wife and I went there, uh, one of our anniversaries, we were visiting my family and, and that was like our day. We drove out to Mount Montauk and just hung out there. And it was, it was awesome. It was like, this is yeah. the, of the, of the Hamptons. This is the one that I think I would, I would enjoy the most also. Cause yeah. it's like right on the water, like more so yeah. than anything else. So yeah. yeah, you probably, do you miss, do you miss the water just being near water? Yeah, actually I do. Um, uh, I like my boyfriend has a dog and, uh, sometimes I'm like, yeah, yeah. I just want to like walk on a lake. Like, is there anywhere around here that we can just like walk along something? And there is like a river that we do walk uh, mm-hmm. along, but, um, yeah, I've, I've definitely mentioned that a couple of times. Cause um, yeah, I'm so used to there being bigger bodies of water <laughs> near me and yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's a good point. Growing up in, around Chicago, do you have a sports fandom? No. (laughs) I mean, if I'm going to like, you know, uh, call allegiance, alliance, whatever to any team, it would be the Cubs, Mm -hmm. but I don't follow um, really any teams. Okay. I don't know if they had any Chicago bears hot takes, but maybe, maybe not. No. No. (laughs) Okay. All right. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Maybe this is a little embarrassing, but I just saw Back to the Future for the first time. Oh, yeah. I know. A couple months ago, I saw that. Oh, was and that on the, the great movie? Great movie. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, great movie. Um, that's a, that's terrib- a good one. Still, still good. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah I loved it. Yeah. Um, I, a terrible movie? Hmm. Oh. Oh, we recently saw this new movie with George Clooney. Okay. Um, it was like him in outer space. No, no, no. He wasn't outer space. The other people were in outer space. Um, and it was like the end of the world um, type of thing. He was, he was uh, some, he was like, I want to say Antarctica or something and yeah. uh, communicating with some spaceship or something. And it was not good. It, it was always seeming like it was going to like be moving somewhere. So that would, I can't remember the title right now, but that would be right now the worst movie I've seen recently. No, I thought it just was like a one word. Title. I, I know it. I know, I know the, I can't think of it, but I know, I know what movie you're talking about. I have not gotten to see yeah. it. It does not sound like a ringing endorsement. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's going to be great and yeah. he directed it, mm-hmm. but it just felt like it was like kept building up to something. And then like, yeah, it just didn't do anything. Gotcha. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Lots of places. I've never been to Europe. 
So I definitely want to go there. Um, and also I, I want to go to Bali. I've mm. wanted to go there for a while. I had a friend, uh, I have a friend that we went to um, undergrad together and she really got into gamelan music and she's been to Bali a couple times. And so I'm kind of like inspired by her to go to Bali. Um, I played a little bit of gamelan, so uh, I don't know a whole lot about it, but it would just be really amazing to see like those ensembles, you know, in person, like from where they originate. Um, so, and also it's just like, from what I've seen pictures of, it's just like a beautiful country. So yeah, Bali. Different question here. What is a non-music related goal that you still have for your life? Uh, and you can include the Olympics as your answer. <laughs> this may be kind of boring, but I would love to own a house someday. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, just kind of have like be more settled because I feel like I've moved around to a bunch of different places. So kind of, yeah, have a house. And because of that, have that more settled feeling. Um, and, but I mean, the more music related part of that is like have a studio <laughs> in that house near future, perhaps uh, related is uh, um, I've been hiking more mm. recently yeah. Um, my, my boyfriend got me into that. And so, uh, we don't have any specific hikes. Like we, I did this really big hike this past summer, Mount Lacant. Um, it was like, uh, it was like 15 miles or something, 12 to 15 miles. Mm. Um, and so doing like another big hike this year is like a, um, a more, um, yeah, in the future, near in the future goal of what I have. Where is that? it's in Tennessee. It's, it's, uh, I don't know how far away from where I am now, but, but yeah, is it it's, east, it's like in the Eastern yeah. part with the mountains. Yeah. Awesome. It's a pretty, it's a really pretty area. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the other thing is, um, yeah, I'd never lived by mountains before. So now that's like a whole new thing. Like hiking was new to me because, yeah. <laughs> you know, I grew up with completely flat. And so, uh, having mountains t- nearby and having hiking as an activity. I was like, what is hiking? Like, you know, walking around, but it's like, you know, like really in a uh, hard activity, like do yeah. that Mount Lacan, um, the way up I was okay. And then the way down, I was like in pain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I totally hear you. That same day that my wife and I did the, the trip to the Hamptons, we, I like looked up the highest part of Long Island, which is in some, Random park. I think it might be in Huntington, like not too far from Stony Brook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I was, you know, in my head, like it's going to be a view, and it's yeah. not. It's just like a bunch of trees, <laughs> and it was such a, it was such a, like a, it was such a letdown. So yeah. uh, I hear you on the <laughs> getting to <Yeah>. the mountains. <laughs> Strangest, most bizarre, or funniest performance moment that involves you. What, what's, what's yours? Let me, let me see. What? <laughs> what, what's yours? <laughs> um, one? I'll give you one. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, I, um, undergrad, we did Pines of Rome with our orchestra mm-hmm. and my, uh, a good friend of mine was, um, in the percussion section. We were in charge of the birds. Do you know the bird sounds at the end of the third movement? Yeah. So this was in the nineties when, when it didn't have the same kind of technology. And so we had the bird sounds on a cassette on a boom box. Mm-hmm. And the job of my friend was to, 
was what she had to press the button and then hold the microphone to the thing so that it would it would go through the system. Yeah. We get to the spot. She hits the I'm I'm I, I'm playing cymbal, so I'm near like that setup. She hits the button, no sounds. And I'm like, and it, like it's been cued and everything. And I keep and I look over at Megan, I'm like, and I look down, she hit the fast forward button. Oh my god. <laughs> so she looks and I, I'm like, Megan, I was like, Psst. I was like, hit play. And and then she goes, and she's like, oh, and then she hits play, and it's like, chip, 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 chip. like it's like the <laughs> loudest part of the thing. I may, it's possible because I do dumb things like this. I may have been like given like a bird thing like that. So. That's amazing. So anyway, yeah. Well, what one piece of art, whether it's music or movies or books or podcasts or YouTube clips or theater, visual art, poetry, etc. What one piece of art has impacted you the most recently? Uh, Amanda Gorman, mm-hmm. uh, her her speech um, for the presidential inauguration was just like beautiful, and uh, yeah, that really impacted me and affected me. And you know, uh, she's speaking poetry, uh, which is something I'm, uh, you know, sp- uh, speaking text with with percussion is something I'm really interested in, and uh, so obviously there's connection there and the way that she spoke it with, you know, such, um, passion, uh, and the the content of it. Um, and it was almost music, like she's just incredible. So that's, uh, I think that's a piece of art and that really impacted me. And I, I, I followed her on Instagram and I'm, um, you know, a big fan now, and I didn't know that much about her before. And so, um, I want to keep learning more about what she does and, and you know, her poetry. Um, and it would be great to eventually incorporate that into something that I do, too. I'm not sure exactly how or, you know, if I if I will, if it's, you know, if it's appropriate. But, yeah, that's kind of been on my mind a little bit. Um, and then I, I know this wasn't part of the question, but I do want to mention that something that uh, I remember early, uh, a while ago that really impacted me was um, Production Group Cincinnati, they came and did a concert at Lawrence and they did um, this, uh, I think the title is like Water Music, uh, yeah, Water Music by Tan Dunn. I don't know if you've seen this before, but um, they're each like at these, bowl, these, they each have a bowl of water in front of them and they're playing the music and the the whole place is, is dark and the water is lit up. And uh, it was just beautiful. And the, the whole concert was had this, this sort of theatrical theme to it. Um, and that was something that like, really stayed with me and um yeah kind of was at the time in my life where I was new to theater theatrical type percussion music and didn't really know a lot about it and you know pushed me to do more research on it and and really figure out like what is it that they're doing I I've, haven't seen things like this before and I want to know more and and that what they did I want to do more of what they're doing all right Abby we are done Thank you. Thank you again so much for having me. And it's been really great to chat. Yes. Yes. Same. So great to chat with Abby for the podcast. I look forward to catching up with her, hopefully in person, really soon. And I wish her the best of luck for all the things, all of them. All right, this week's rave is the 2020 film 
Sound of Metal, starring Riz Ahmed and Olivia Cook, directed by Darius Martyr, streaming on Amazon, and up for a number of Academy Awards later this month. You may be familiar with Olivia Cook from her work as Artemis on Ready Player One, as well as the film Thoroughbreds. While the British-Pakistani actor Riz Ahmed is likely best known for the films Nightcrawler and Rogue One, a Star Wars story. The basic plot for Sound of Metal is that Riz and Olivia play a boyfriend-girlfriend couple who are punk metal rockers in a two-person band where she's the guitarist singer and he's the drummer. And his hearing suddenly deserts him, and with it, his life and his livelihood. And Riz has to adapt. The film is impressive because it has to completely change direction to adapt to Riz's character going from the loud metal drummer scene to suddenly near total deafness. Riz's character then has to adjust his life and outlook and immerse himself in the deaf community and start to turn around what was once his life. Riz is already a musician under the rapper name MC Riz, but even he realized that that was not enough to be ready to play a drummer in a movie and get used to all of the coordination that a drum set player requires. He was believable, though, in the drummer role, and I think that's enough for what he had to do. The bigger deep dive for him was existing in the deaf world and learning about the deaf culture. He spent seven months learning American Sign Language, and that journey was the more compelling one in the movie. Additionally, the ways the film shows how his lack of hearing impacts everything in his life, those are the best parts in the movie. It's a somber, beautiful film that is currently streaming on Amazon. Check out Sound of Metal. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at petezambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.